News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Cassidy Hutchinson. You know, yesterday, most people hadn't heard that name. Today, it's pretty much all they're talking about in the United States. Cassidy Hutchinson was a little-known former White House aide who spent a lot of time yesterday describing the atmosphere around the President Donald Trump on January 6th of 2020. And the picture she painted of that day was often shocking. Let's find out why. Joining us now is Jackson Prosco, our Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning. Could you let us know, what was it that Cassidy Hutchinson said yesterday that seems to be so shocking? What was the picture that she painted You know, I think first and foremost, the thing you need to keep in mind is that she was actually in the room when a lot of these key moments happened up to and on January 6th. And what she did was paint a picture of a president who was out of control, a president who was fully aware of the fact that the crowd of his own supporters was heavily armed. And in fact, one anecdote that came out of her testimony yesterday was that as Trump summoned the rally of his supporters on the ellipse outside the White House on the morning of January 6th, reports kept coming into the White House from the Secret Service that people in the crowd were armed. They were having their weapons confiscated as they entered the secure area outside the White House where Trump was speaking. But people who wouldn't enter the secure area were seen to have uh, AR-15 style rifles and other sidearms, other guns on their person. And essentially what we learned is that Trump saw the size of the crowd outside the White House wasn't big enough because people didn't want to pass through the magnetometers and potentially lose their weapons. And so he demanded that the Secret Service stand down on security, remove the magnetometers and said, these people aren't here to hurt me. Okay, so that was the other shocking thing about what I heard yesterday, too. The Secret Service situation that there seemed she was testifying, Cassidy Hutchinson was, that that there were several um, disputes, I guess, that the president had with Secret Service. Is that right? That's right. You may remember on the morning of the 6th, Trump told his supporters that they were all going to march together up to the Capitol and he would be there with them. Well, he really wanted to go to the Capitol himself. And we sort of know this from prior testimony that Trump really wanted to go there. What we learned yesterday was just how committed Trump was to attending the Capitol in person and potentially going into the House chamber while the vote certification was taking place. And what Cassidy Hutchinson testified is that Trump got back into his armored SUV after his rally on the ellipse. And when he realized that the Secret Service wasn't going to drive him to the Capitol, he became irate. He actually lunged at the steering wheel of the SUV limo that he was in, according to Hutchinson. Uh, his security detail actually pushed him away. And then she testified that he lunged at his lead Secret Service agent and tried to grab him by the clavicles. Wow. Okay. And so will there be a chance for Secret Service to testify about that to get any other verification of what happened? Well, we know that some of the Secret Service agents have already testified. That testimony has not yet been made public. There is unsubstantiated reporting. It suggests close sources close to the Secret Service are disputing this, but these are unnamed people. There's no suggestion they're actually with the Secret Service, and they've not gone under oath, unlike Cassidy Hutchinson yesterday. Right. You touched on this briefly, though, but what what was different about Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony? Is it the fact that she was in the room when all this happened? 
Yeah, it's this idea that she is first person, that she, you know, spoke of overhearing the conversation directly where Trump called on the Secret Service to stand down and let his armed supporters get in because they weren't there to hurt him, as as one example. Uh, she described overhearing in conversations in the White House that involved words like Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. Those are extremist groups that are now facing seditious conspiracy charges. On and on and on it goes. But really what it does is add sort of texture to the mood inside the White House on the 6th and she describes seeing, uh, you know, staff members who appeared despondent, staff members who sort of seemed to understand, to seem to know what was going on, uh, even though it was a surprise to her and to many others in and around the White House. Right. OK, so what happens now after this kind of bombshell testimony? Well, I think this is only going to increase the pressure on the Department of Justice and others to pursue criminal charges against uh, Trump, perhaps, and those closest to him. We learned from Hutchinson's testimony yesterday that Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, and Rudy Giuliani, who, of course, was Trump's lawyers, both proactively sought pardons in the aftermath of January 6th. Uh, And so the question is... Does the line connect from those extremist groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers directly to the White House and someone coordinating them? That link hasn't been made yet, but that's potential. And of course, the question is, if Trump knew his own supporters were armed and wanted to head to the Capitol and wanted them to keep their weapons and march to the Capitol with them, uh, does that suggest he was part of some conspiracy? Did that suggest that he was part of a plot to interrupt the process of government, which, of course, is a criminal offense? So does that, do you think, heighten these hearings? Does that take the hearings to the next step? Yeah, I think it absolutely increases the pressure on the Justice Department to contemplate charges. But of course, that is completely unprecedented territory. And Merrick Garland, the attorney general, is going to have to weigh the sort of risks and political implications of charging a former president, uh, the question of how his supporters might act to that, and the question of uh, what specifically he might pursue as charges. But certainly the roadmap seems to have been laid out as of yesterday. Okay, and we know that her testimony was quite devastating to the former president. Do we know what his reaction has been to her testimony? He has been lashing out on Truth Social, which is alternative social media platform. Uh, very familiar refrain of, I don't know who this is. She was not an important person in the White House. It's all hearsay. Sort of typical Trumpian response uh, when these types of things uh, come forward. I think the bigger tell, though, is that people in Trump world, his closest allies, are pretty quiet today. They're not rushing out there to defend or deny or even deflect at this point. Oh, boy, that's interesting. Jackson, thank you. My pleasure. That's Jackson Prosco, our Global News Washington bureau chief, talking about the testimony yesterday in Washington, D.C. of Cassidy Hutchinson. Up until yesterday, not very well known, former White House aide. Today, very well known for her first person testimony, as Jackson was saying, being in the room when these incidents were happening. Up until now, we've heard a lot of hearsay testimony, people who heard that the president had said maybe this, uh, but she is one of the few people we've heard testify who actually said I was there when this was said, which is what makes this situation so different. wonder what the fallout's going to be from this one. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we talk about where times are changing and things are changing. Here's another good example of that. Some new rules for people who like to use Airbnb at our Raji Silhals with us this morning. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, Airbnb has announced that they are making it official that you can no longer get a short-term rental and have a party in someone else's place. So they're banning all parties. I have Airbnb'd a lot 
uh, in the past uh, in another city in Montreal when I lived there. I Airbnb'd my own place when I would travel. Um, but I did all of this in the apps early years, like when it wasn't overrun by developers, uh, people who like own tons of homes and just uh, before it, it turned their, into a hotel, before essentially. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. And back then, Simi, people used to use it uh, just mostly actually when they would go away traveling themselves. So they'd be like, hey, this is a great way for me to make a couple of bucks while I'm away. Someone else who's traveling to where I live will come use my place. That's what it was initially for. Um, and I've often actually been the first person to stay in someone's house. So the first person to write a review for them. And I and I loved Airbnb for all the things that like it allowed you to do that you couldn't do with a hotel. It was like, so much more unique, uh, usually better located, more comfortable. You get a kitchen. I feel so like I there's a Paris. butt coming. <laughs> well, I saw all like I traveled the world that way um, for many years. And then... Uh, things changed so much with Airbnb. And right now, yes, as we've mentioned, like a lot of people have just a ton of units that they rent out and they've never lived in them themselves. So there's nothing unique or special about those places. But one thing that you could do before was host a small party at someone's place. And some hosts would include parties on their list of things that were okay. And at the beginning, people were respectful about it. It'd be like a tiny birthday party or a tiny, you know, baby shower. Um, but now, now you can't have any parties. And the uh, Airbnb site had actually banned temporarily parties in August 2020. But the reason then was the pandemic. And now the pandemic's over. Uh, they're all outright banning it, which I think is a good idea because it's hard to have a party and and not leave any evidence of said parties. But there have been so many stories of damage to people's walls, floors, furniture. Inevitably, parties mean loud music. And that infuriates neighbors who want nothing to do with tourists being on their like tiny neighborhood block or whatever it may be or in their condo building. It's also very awkward when the police show up for a noise uh, complaint yeah. and there's no <laughs> owner to talk to. You're just like, oh, yeah, man, I'm just renting this place for the night. So I'm glad they're doing this suspend uh, that the suspension is moved to a full removal of parties from the platform. It's about time. Airbnb, I think, is ruining neighborhoods in, uh, for so many reasons, but I'm very glad to see that they at least are getting rid of parties. I think it's the popularity of it, right? As you pointed out, it was fine when it was this kind of quirky thing that you could do and it was kind of neat and it was different from a hotel. But now not only is it as big as any hotel chain, it's probably bigger than most hotel chains and it's not any cheaper, I find, than a hotel now. And there's all these service fees that get piled on. And I think it's just, it's become too big for it to maintain that kind of reputation that people thought it had. Totally. It's changed so much. A friend of mine who lives in an Olympic village, uh, her cleaner's pricing has gone up. So now when she rents her place, her cleaning fee for her tiny condo is $250. So Well, that's where the money is from her. on Airbnb. Exactly. If you're a host on Airbnb, where you get your money is from those cleaning fees. And a lot of you don't, sometimes people don't check those. I think they're getting savvier with that now though, right? Because you book and you're like, oh, that's a pretty good fee per night. And then when you factor in the service fees and now the cleaning fees, it is not any cheaper than going to a hotel. 
Yeah, and a lot of the hosts have really annoying lists now too of things that you have to do before you leave the place. So it's like, not only do you have to take out the recycling and the garbage, but they expect you as a guest to deep clean a place as well. And then there's still a cleaning fee on top of that. Um, So it's not nearly as comfortable as it used to, to be to stay in someone else's place. And also people are decorating their homes deliberately, their apartments, whatever, deliberately with the idea of renting it out in mind. So you're not, you know, entering someone's charming little lair. No, you're not. In a, at all. It's like, uh, you know, generic Ikea furniture meant to be destroyed. It's just not the special thing it was once upon a time. Well, you could say that about a lot of, I think a lot of these tech, you know, things that were initially so great are now that they've become big corporate mainstream, they're not as fun. And I think Airbnb is a great example of that. You know, another one is Uber. I hear so many oh, people complaining yeah. now about Uber about, well, wait a minute, now the, the rides are too expensive or they have trouble finding an Uber ride and it's, it's the same situation. I think they get to be victims of their own success. Yeah, I think with Airbnb, one of the big things about its decline was that it it got huge quickly, like almost suddenly it got it got just so big and became a money-making scheme for people. It lost its initial whole reason for being. You know, Airbnb started out it's the name Air came from Air Mattress. And it was initially people who were just like kind of couch surfing. Um, And it was way more casual and relaxed. You know what's fun, Simi, when you travel? It's actually staying in a hotel. That's what's yeah, fun. It is. Clean <laughs> towels. Clean you don't have towels. to clean up after yourself entirely. Yes. Like you can be slightly untidy and it's okay. And uh, people are nice to you and they greet you at the door and you go about your own business. Oh, wow. Look at you. Now we've come full circle. This is what I find (laughs) fascinating. Thank you for that, Rachi. (laughs) Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk some BC history this morning because it was certainly made yesterday with the announcement that Premier John Horgan is going to be stepping down just about five years after forming an NDP government here in BC. He's going to remain on until a new leader is chosen. I had some people emailing me also about whether or not he'll stay on as an MLA. I believe that is the case. As for now, that is the case that he'll stay on as an MLA until the next election, which is about two years away, at least according to the schedule we have now. So how historic was this? Why is it so significant? Well, for that, we turn to Shachi Curl, who's the president of Angus Reid, who has certainly covered quite a few premieres on this topic. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Sumi. Yeah, I saw you talking about this yesterday on social media. So how significant is this, do you think? Well, so off the top of my head, I did a, I did a, just a really quick brain scan, and then I asked some colleagues to check it out. Uh, I think you can make the case that there has not been a British Columbia premier who has not been pushed off a cliff either by electoral results or by their own caucus or by scandal or other political pressures who left on their own terms since, drumroll please, Bill Bennett in 1986, who left, uh, as he said, undefeated and on his own terms. So this is pretty unprecedented in the wacky world of BC politics. Okay, and and also there's never been an NDP premier. He set a lot of records in terms of being an NDP premier with his his history too. 
very true. So uh, first uh, British Columbia NDP premier in 16 years after the era of the of the largely Campbell Liberals, followed by some of the years of, of Christy Clark. Uh, and you'd have to go back to the era again of Dave Barrett uh, to find a, an NDP premier uh, who had not been walked out the door either by his own caucus or party or uh, or as a result of, of some scandal. So uh, Barrett was obviously defeated in the 76 election. But when you think back to Mike Harcourt, big win in 91, he was gone some years later as a result of the Nanaimo Commonwealth holding scandal, also known as Bingo Gate. Uh, then you had Casino Gate and Glenn right. Clark and the Fast Ferries. Yeah, Dan Miller in there for a little while. I, I forget what happened with him. And then you had Ujil Dasanj, who at the end of the day in 2001 uh, was was the premier left standing uh, on the night of the NDP's uh, really uh, terrible defeat when they were reduced to in uh, the BC legislature. So Horgan managed to come in, convince just enough voters in British Columbia back in 2017 to give the NDP a look and a chance. Uh, managed to hold things together in terms of a coalition uh, for for the you know for more than two years for the better part of two and a half years called an election in 2020 and, and won a majority so a lot of a lot of firsts in terms of uh, the way the NDP was able to come back but of course looking forward now Simi the big question is not so much you know the 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 uh, the political or magic or whatever you want to call it of John Horgan to connect with BC voters. It's all about now what comes next and how whomever wins or prevails in the next leadership contest for the leadership of the, the BC New Democrats, how they stack up against someone like Kevin Salkin, the opposition leader, and what kind of matchup that looks like and what the appeal factor is at that point. Right. Well, we'll be talking to Kevin Falcon later on about all of this news. But let me ask you, Shachi, about comparing premiers across the country. Um, I know that Angus Reid often does their kind of premier's ratings. Where is John Horgan sitting on that rating in, in your last set that you did? Yes, yeah, so we've been doing that uh, every three months for, gosh, well, a long time, more than a decade. Um, so what I can tell you is that uh, Horgan's personal approval had slipped about seven points, so that was significant uh, in the last quarter, so between spring of this year and now. Uh, so much of that, I believe, was driven by, uh, by the absolute firestorm that was created over the announcement of the Royal BC Museum. I think when we go back into field uh, later this summer, early in the fall, as we do on a regular schedule, we will see those numbers will probably have uh, bumped up a little bit. But consistently, over time, Horgan has been among the top three, top two, top four uh, most approved of premiers in the country. Uh, I, you know, and these politicians always say, well, we don't pay attention to polls. I actually know that they take bets on who's going to come I'll out on, they top on a quarterly <laughs> basis. <laughs> and there have been a few times where where the premier has, has either pulled uh, our chairman, the Angus Reid, aside and said, what are, what are my numbers looking like? Or, or, or asked that of me. And I'm like, oh, sorry, premier, you'll have to see when they come out. So That's uh, funny. in any event, <laughs> they pay a lot of attention. But I think he's, He's taken some pride in that, uh, and I think there is a great deal of interest in that. And so if you are an NDP fundraiser, caucus member, voter, supporter, you, you're, you're feeling a little bit 
uh, maybe a little bit anxious this morning and in the months ahead around what comes next. Right, because it is unusual, would you say, to see one person consistently stay in that kind of popular range on your premier's index for the time period that we're talking about here for five years? Uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, it it is unusual, although there is precedent for it. Brad Wall was consistently course, very yeah. popular in Saskatchewan. We saw some other premiums. Now, others like really go up and then really go down and go up and go down, or some just can never really get off the runway and sort of sputter in the 30% range for the entirety of their of their tenure. Uh, you know, Horgan saw some high highs, as, as all the premiers did during the pandemic, uh, and he's seen some lower lows, but we never saw him sort of in what I would call, a, a, you know, a danger range, far from it. There was always a plurality of British Columbians who said, you know, maybe they weren't they weren't entirely happy with the with the policies the NDP was trotting out, but they felt that he was doing a good job. But you know, there is some political astuteness here too. Absolutely, there there is. As much as the premier is talking about his health, his energy levels, and we all wish him all the best on that front. Politically, let's face it, he's facing some pretty significant headwinds. Uh, no amount of personal popularity, appeal, charm is going to fix cost of living uh, or high housing prices or the cost of gasoline or uh, be the magic wand that magically fixes uh, health care and severe health care concerns that British Columbians are experiencing. And he may be looking uh, down the road and going, yeah, that's that's not so good for my legacy. And people always want to leave on a high if they have the opportunity to. Well, they try to, right? Or they think they want to until it's too late and then they realize (laughs) it's too late to do that. Okay, so then you talked about headwinds and obviously these are things for the next, the person who is thinking about running for the leadership to be aware of. So I guess that makes your polling very interesting over the next six months. Well, it does. And I think the first thing they need to be alive to is that British Columbians are able to separate um, the politician from government performance. And again, while Horgan is, is uh, seen in British Columbia to overall by a significant number of people to be doing a pretty good job, just under 50 percent say that even even today, uh, they do not think uh, the current provincial government is doing great on a lot of these really key files. Housing affordability continues to be the thing that dominates for British Columbians, not just in Metro Vancouver, Simi, but all over the province. Healthcare, big issue. Cost of living, inflation, big issue. Uh, and they're not very happy with what they're seeing at the moment. Okay, that's what's going to make this leadership race so interesting. Shachi, thank you for that. Thanks for having me. That's Shachi Carroll, president of Angus Reid, talking about historically how premiers poll and what makes this stepping down for the premier so interesting in that he has remained pretty popular over five years. Now, if you're the person who wants to come along after wants to be the next leader of that political party, uh, yeah, that's going to make it very challenging. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about the future of the governing party in this province. I'm sure there's a lot of jockeying going on right now, a lot of discussion that's happening. And what are the factors that led to all of this? Well, let's talk about somebody who is there at the table. It's Katrina Conroy, the MLA for Kootenai West and BC's Minister of Forest. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Simi. Happy to be here. How are you feeling about all this today? Well, uh, mixed emotions, bittersweet. I mean, we, those of us who've known John for so long, we, uh, 
uh, had hoped he would uh, continue, but totally understand his uh, why he's doing this. And, and he, he's been an amazing leader, an amazing uh, friend, an amazing premier to this province. Were you surprised to hear about the decision? Uh, yes and no. I, I thought, uh, well, I, I, I thought it might be coming, but in my heart of hearts, I hope that uh, he might stay on a bit longer because he has been such an incredible leader and friend. And But, I mean, he's still our premier. He's going to be a premier until we have a new premier, and he's going to stay on as an MLA, and so he'll still be there for us. But, uh, I, um, you know, it, it was it was a tough day yesterday. <laughs> I can imagine. I know that he was very specific in saying yesterday that he he wanted to get it out of the way so that the business of you know running the government could continue. Mm-hmm. Not that that's going to happen because there'll be lots of speculation. But I'm wondering how does that impact your job as Minister of Forests? Well, the interesting thing about John is he was always a leader who put his uh, his cabinet ministers, his colleagues at the forefront of our files. He was always one to say when people went to him and wanted a meeting about forest, for instance, he'd say, "If you talk to Cat first, and, you know, you have to talk to Cat. That's her file." And he was he was so he he made us so secure in our files, and he gave us that support to do what we needed to do, and and we knew that. People had to come to us to talk about our files, and he was so good at that. He, you know, you, well, you saw that in the pandemic. You know, he put uh, he put Minister Dix and, and Bonnie Henry out first and foremost. He didn't do the he wasn't the spokesperson. Um, Minister Dix and, and Bonnie Henry were, and, and that that gave confidence to people what, what was happening in the province. And, and he's done that in so many ways. He, he's been a, a really great leader in that way. So are there priorities then that for your for your ministry in particular that you would like to get done that were for instance Premier Horgan's priorities? Oh, I think they were both our priorities, and they were the people of the province's priorities. Now we're going to continue to look at how we can um, we can modernize the forest industry, how we can take care of our forests. You know, the whole issue around old growth. We've done more to protect old growth in this province than any any. Uh, government has ever done and we will continue to do that we will also ensure we have a forest industry for generations to come because that's critically important to me it's important to john it's important to the people of this province it's a it's an industry that's here to stay and and uh, we're going to make sure that happens Uh, does this change the dynamic at all at the cabinet table now because you know there'll be some people who will be you know doing their work and also Mm -hmm. thinking about running for leadership yeah, and it will change the dynamic because anybody who is at the cabinet table will will have to step down as a cabinet minister. So we will have people filling those positions. Uh, probably the people at the table will be doing it. I'm not quite sure what. Uh, I mean, it depends who's going to run. We haven't even got there yet. This week is about uh, about John and his decision, but uh, people are making up their minds. It, it's a big decision. It's a big decision to make, and so you know there's there's there will be some dynamics that change at the table, definitely. Is it a decision you're considering? No, not for you. <laughs> not for me. No, I mean people people have asked. I've had a number of calls, but and I appreciate that. And as we all are, right? I mean, I, every one of us, I'm sure, has been approached and said you should run. It's, uh, but you know, it, it's uh, it, it's a big job. It's uh, it's a real commitment. I mean, you. you probably heard it in John's voice yesterday, the emotion. I mean, it, it, it does take away from your family, but at the same time, it's a real honour. Um, being in, in politics, having the honour to, to serve your constituency, to serve the people of the province is an incredible honour, one that we don't take lightly, and we have to make sure we put people at the forefront all the time. Well, I guess it's fair to say, and you've been in BC politics for a long time, it's never dull, is it? 
Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> it's never dull, no. And, and it's, you know, when you look at, at John's history, not, not only has he been a politician since 2005, he was a staff person in Ottawa and in, in the government of the 90s. And so I've known John vicariously to my late husband when, in the 90s when he worked in, in government. And he has he's left an incredible legacy to this province. So it's, uh, you know, it's something that we can look at. Even, like, you know, when you think about in, in my region alone, the Columbia Basin Trust, which is such a benefit to the to the region, and and it's time was due. Um, John was the the staff person who spearheaded that through the you know through government, and so that's a legacy that will people in the Kootenays will remember for for generations. I mean, the, the generations now, my grandchildren are benefiting from that decision back in the nineties. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Have a good day. That's Katrina Conroy, who's the MLA for Kootenay West and the Minister of Forests, talking about the things that will change the dynamic, all of that inevitable, the cabinet table in caucus now that Premier John Horgan has announced he's stepping down. Uh, we still wait for more details on when the leadership convention will exactly be held, but we do know he said this fall that will happen. So there will be a new Premier in BC after that point. So not too far ahead. Lots to talk about on that front. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CK. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, e-bikes have become so popular that if you happen to be in the market for a new one, you might expect a long wait list. But there's another concern about these too, and that is fatalities caused from exploding batteries. That happened in an e-bike earlier this month in Vancouver. So how safe is this technology? Well, our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, you know, experts will tell you, oh, e-bike battery explosions are extremely rare. You know, the numbers are supposed to be around one in one million, but there have been already in Vancouver several deaths this year from fires around the lithium batteries exploding in those e-bikes. To me, Simi, that doesn't sound rare to have five deaths in Vancouver already in 2022 because of that cause. So it sounds like something we need to figure out. So I set out on a mission to find out what is up with e-bikes. Are they even safe? I spoke with Hasib Javed. He's a product engineer with Envo Drive Systems, and they're a BC-based engineering and R&D company. Batteries are in themselves, they are dangerous only if you don't know what you're dealing with. Every household has laptops. Every household has mobiles. There's a mobile in my pocket right now. They have the same sort of batteries that goes into the e-bikes, which is lithium-ion batteries. Any other batteries, they usually don't explode. E-bikes have been getting a lot of cases recently because of uh, a few things that we have identified because of where in the market and we see how the customers are using it or how the products are when we get it from uh, the factories. I personally believe, and I'm going to be the devil's advocate, the responsibility lies on the three parties here, which is the customer, the manufacturer, and the government. Most of the explosions that we have seen is because there's been modifications done to the batteries. People have been using fast chargers for the batteries which are not designed for fast charging. They've been modifying the BMS. Uh, to override the safety protocols. And there have been cases where the batteries were damaged over time and there was not, like after there is even a little bit of damage on the battery, you need to take it to an expert for them to judge if it's safe to use it. 
So interesting, Simi, to hear from him that people modify the batteries as much as they do, uh, because most people are not engineers, let alone electrical engineers who would know how to do that. And so uh, it's concerning that people do that, but people will do that with all kinds of uh, devices that they need recharged. They'll use the wrong kind of charger. They'll use a supercharger for something that's not meant to. And Hasib's argument is also that with the sudden popularity of e-bikes, that's kind of why he said we're seeing the cases of the batteries exploding because people are using them a lot. They're using them often. Um, the e-bikes, people are using them to get to work or they're getting those ones uh, to double their kids on to take them to school. Uh, they're getting a lot of use from couriers, from food delivery services like DoorDash. Hasib pointed out that it's not just a matter of the fact that the lithium batteries used in an e-bike, but that these devices, the e-bikes are getting a lot of use. And a lot of the battery operated goods in our house that we uh, use often are not of the same kind of wattage by comparison. So they're not using nearly as much energy. And bikes, yeah, bikes get used a lot, hundreds of kilometers in a single week. Uh, if you so much as drop that electrical bike, even one time, or say, you know, you're caught in the Vancouver rain several times and you're looking at a battery then that like needs to be looked at and possibly serviced for any damage. And if I had an e-bike and I, you know, dropped it, I probably would not uh, get it serviced to check that battery out. What I would do is I would, it's tempting to just take a chance and keep using a battery or, or using any kind of electrical device in, until it appears to no longer chug along. Simi, I have a, a handheld vacuum cleaner from a very popular manufacturer. And when the battery went kaput, I looked into how much it would cost to replace it. It's outrageously um, expensive, Raji. So expensive. <laughs> I know. So the price dissuaded me. I thought, well, forget that. I'll get a third-party battery, right, online. So I did. I found a third-party battery at a fraction of the cost, thinking, oh, I've got myself a deal. I put it in my vacuum. I, to this day, continue to wonder how safe it is. It works, but I, you know, I took a chance there. So now after having done this interview, I've, I've, I've thought uh, twice now about that battery. Maybe I shouldn't be using it. Here's product engineer Hasib Javed again. So a lot of the manufacturers that have sprouted in the past few years, uh, they don't have any, any in-house engineering going on. So what they usually do is they rely on overseas uh, factories to do the engineering for them. If a battery and the e-bike was designed for for Chinese weather, and you just import that without any consideration into Yukon or Northern Territories in Canada, uh, there might be some serious safety aspect. And that's where, where, where the manufacturers needs to be very careful. If they don't know what they're doing, they, sh they should rely on someone who, sh who knows. And that's where the certifications get in. Uh, there are some safety certifications out there, which uh, if, if, if a manufacturer does not have in-house engineering, they can just follow a recipe that's been made by some experts who set out guidelines that, hey, if you follow these guidelines, your product is going to be safe. I know it's a very new industry and usually regulations are the last thing manufacturers want or even customers to a certain degree. But I strongly believe that now is the time that government should uh, start enforcing the laws which are already there. That is so interesting. Then you're right. It makes, I think, everybody think twice, especially since firefighters have come out and said, we need to be more careful around these batteries. 
Yeah, and I guess around all batteries, uh, Simi, we think about their overuse, their potential damage. Um, last year, I remember reading some consumer news stories about, uh, you know, these light-up shoes that kids wear, like running shoes? Oh, yeah, they've been around forever, on. yeah. Yeah, and there were some that caused fires, unbeknownst to the people who just had them stored in their you know, closets. Um, they had started some fires due to those tiny batteries. Um, and it's also important to think about like how a battery might have been damaged uh, and important to think about, as in my case with my vacuum cleaner that I needed to replace the battery in, uh, is it worth it to go with a dodgy third-party uh, battery when uh, those manufacturers might not be following the guidelines that are there because the government uh, does have regulations around these batteries. Um, it's just a matter of them enforcing it too. You know, I also have or have had one of those um, vacuums that you're talking about, the exact same kind. And yeah. you know what happened to me when it needed a new battery and I saw how much it was? You got rid of it. Well, I still have it. I okay. bought a Black Friday vacuum that you plug in and it was yeah. fant- it's fantastic. I it's like the greatest <laughs> vacuum I've ever owned in my entire life. And now I like, oh yeah, I still have that other one, but I leave it downstairs for like small things because it just is not as it just is not as good as plugging one in and having the immense like suction power. And so yeah, that's what I for the same price of the battery, I bought a yeah. brand new vacuum on Black Friday. Yeah. And I also keep, uh, I kept my old one around for its 30 seconds of suction that I could get out of it <laughs> for the right. longest time. But yeah, there's nothing like plugging something into the wall that just like you trust, okay, this is going to have more power and work better. And then you're also not having to worry about the, the safety of the battery. So true. Thank you for that. Fascinating. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there talking about these lithium-ion batteries. And they are in, as she pointed out, a lot more things than you probably realize. Uh, We'll talk about what you've been saying when we come back. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, all of a sudden, in the space of a few months, B.C. politics looks very different. You've got both major political parties in our province that have undergone or are about to undergo changes at the top. And for more on that and the news about Premier John Horgan, we're joined now by Kevin Falcon, leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Were you surprised by what you heard yesterday? I was a little surprised at the timing. I wasn't surprised with the decision, to be honest, I think that John made the right decision for both himself and Ellie and his family, frankly. And I think that my overwhelming feeling is one of appreciation and respect for the fact that, you know, he has spent, you know, really if you take the 17 years as an MLA plus another decade as a staffer to the NDP, you know, government of the 1990s, John has pretty much dedicated his entire adult life to, public life in one form or, or another, and I think we owe him uh, an appreciation for, for that commitment. Does the general public perhaps not always understand what goes on behind the scenes of question period? You know, we see the sparring, we see that, but, you know, you, Mr. Falcon, and Mr. Horgan, you've been serving together in one capacity or another in the legislature for many, many years. No, it's very true, actually. And, and uh, you know, I spent the last 10 years in the private sector, so I was away for a bit. But, you know, even when I would bump into John, uh, as I did once uh, on the street in Vancouver, you know, we had a really good chat together and had some laughs about his time as premier and my time in the private sector. And, and so there is a, 
you know, there is an amiability that uh, that you have with most of the people on the opposite side. Not all of them, but most of them. And certainly, I always had a, a good personal relationship with John. Um, I think we both share some Irish heritage, and so we we do enjoy the cut and thrust of the politics, but we also enjoy just, you know, uh, being able to sit down and, and have a chat with each other, and he's someone I could easily share a beer with. So let me ask you then, how does this change things for what you're doing and for your party? It really doesn't much, to be honest with you, because as I said to my party, you know, my focus is making sure that we uh, remain entirely focused on revitalizing and re-energizing our party, making sure that it's a big tent party, that everyone can feel very welcoming, uh, you know, being part of this party, as long as they share our principles that a private sector-driven economy is the best way to generate revenues for government so that we can fund really important public services. Uh, you know, and, and that, I think, that message has really been getting out there very effectively. And I'm going to be focusing on results because I think competence does matter, Simi. And I've said many times that, you know, although I think I may disagree with the NDP, I, I think they're nice people and I do think they mean well. It's just that they really don't know how to manage and oversee a large, complex organization like government because they haven't got the, the background and the skill set that's needed right now to deal with these big challenges. But is there a little bit of relief on your part? I mean, you were dealing with somebody who was personally very, remained very popular after five years, more popular than the actual party. Oh, sure. You know, but as I used to jokingly, and I'd say this to John too, when I saw him, my goodness, I, I would love to have been in government when you had two years where you effectively had no opposition during, you know, COVID. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable when you, you know, basically have to talk about one subject area. So I do think that does help a little bit. But look, yes, uh, I would, uh, I'd be less than honest if I didn't tell you that um, there is a benefit, uh, you know, politically with him leaving because he is their strongest team member. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you look across at the rest of the bench over there and they're they're good people, but they're not John Horgan. And so from a selfish point of view, yeah, I, I think that probably provides some benefit. But again, I'm just going to be focused on results and outcomes and, and trying to deliver, you know, better ideas and a better vision for the province that the public can rally behind. And so what does your party now focus on for the next six months while clearly, you know, across the aisle, they're going to be focused on a leadership race? They'll be very distracted for sure. And, and uh, we're going to, you know, be focused on, first of all, doing our job. Our job is to hold them accountable uh, as leader of the official opposition. My job is to make sure that we point out the shortcomings, that we point out that, you know, we've got one in five British Columbians that can't access a family doctor, that we've got the longest uh, wait times in Canada when it comes to walk-in clinics, that we've got the highest housing prices in North America, the highest gas prices in North America, you know, crime spinning out of control, not just in Vancouver, but frankly, in every community in this province. And and so, you know, we'll be really focused on dealing with uh, those issues and pointing out the weaknesses, coming up with alternative solutions, and then also making sure that we're ready for an election in the spring of next year, because although there are fixed election dates that we brought in as BC Liberals, uh, you know, we saw the NDP ignored that law when it was uh, during the pandemic and they called an election. So I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to do that again. So I want to be make, make sure that we are ready for an election in the spring of next year in case they try and take advantage of uh, the public not paying attention and try to call an early election. Never a dull moment. Uh, thank you for your time this morning. 
No problem. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. That's Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC Liberal Party, talking about their reaction from that side of the aisle to the announcement yesterday that Premier John Horgan will be stepping down. And yeah, you can bet the opposition, that's their job. They're going to try to capitalize on the distraction of a leadership race that the governing party is going to now go through. You know, lots of people have been reacting to the news as well. Some very well-known BC political names too, like Glenn Clark, former NDP Premier in this province, and of course now businessman working for the Jim Pattison group, and he had a chance to give his thoughts on this when he was talking to Jazz Joe Hall yesterday afternoon on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Have a listen. Well, of course, I'm disappointed for the people of British Columbia. I think he's just done a terrific job and uh, is such a good guy, and I think people see that, which is why he's so popular. Um, but for him personally, I sort of get it. You know, he's he's gone. You know, this COVID has been a a tough thing for a lot of people, and in government, boy. It just was really challenging. I think people don't realize how stressful that period was. And then, of course, he had cancer and the treatments and, and the recovery time, and he's still suffering from some of those long-term effects of the treatment. So, I mean, I get it. I mean, it's, uh, he's been there. He's done his time. He's done a, he was there for, in opposition for a long time. So, boy, yeah, I certainly wish him all the best. I think uh, uh, it's not very often, uh, Jazz, that someone leaves politics when they're popular. <laughs> <laughs> And, act- and actually, uh, I was just thinking, he's more popular now than when he first got elected. So, I mean, that's, uh, I can't imagine very many people saying that. So, um, you know, good timing on his part to get out while he's still popular. Yeah, in many ways, you're right. I mean, you've you've known him for a very long time, not only when you were Premier, but uh, as a person in opposition, as an MLA. What was he like in the 1990s as a staffer? <laughs> Well, he's got a great sense of humor, as you see, everybody sees. And uh, But you know what it is? He's, he, he connects with people because he's relatable. He's, uh, he's not full of himself. He's down to earth. He's, he's unscripted, so it allows him to, uh, to take some risks. Sometimes he gets in trouble for it, but I think it was the same then. Uh, uh, he's a hardworking guy, a smart guy, too. So he, uh, he's paid his dues, that's for sure. And that is Glenn Clark, of course, former NDP Premier, talking on the Jazz Joe Hall Show yesterday with Jazz about the reaction that Premier John Horgan is stepping down. And, you know, we talk about all the ways in which Premier Horgan made history. He was also the first and only NDP Premier to be re-elected in this province. And now we're two years away, potentially, from an election. So we'll see what happens. But if you want to weigh in with your thoughts on the news, I welcome it. Simi at cknw.com. There'll be lots of questions now. I think pretty much any time anybody, any NDP, MLA, or cabinet minister now has a press conference on any topic, they're going to get asked that question about, are you going to run? We always already heard on the show this morning from Katrina Conroy, the forest minister, We asked her that question and she said, nope, it is not for her. But you know what? There's going to be no shortage of politicians to ask that question of. So it's going to make things very interesting for the next little while, isn't it? So yes, keep your thoughts coming. Lots for us to talk about. And of course, more with Vaughn tomorrow morning.